This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. We're going to run a lot longer than usual this week because the issue to be discussed is both very important and somewhat complicated. The Supreme Court has been a hot-button topic since the start of the 21st century, when it, in effect, gave the presidential election that year to George H.W. Bush. Dissatisfaction with the court is nothing new and to be expected. Back in the 50s and 60s, the chant from the right was impeach Earl Warren, the then Chief Justice of the United States. Warren had been a darling of conservative Republicans when he ran for office in his home state of California, but under him, the high court took a much different turn. It ended segregation, expanded the scope of the First Amendment, required that Miranda warnings be given to defendants at the time of their arrest and that states had to provide an attorney for anyone who couldn't afford to hire one. None of these decisions pleased anyone on the right, including the president who appointed him, Dwight Eisenhower. Impeach Earl Warren signs were prominent on billboards throughout the South during the 50s and 60s. This time, though, the dissatisfaction has only grown since the Bush court election, especially because the court majority shifted to the conservative side of the political spectrum, affecting such issues as electoral reform, the place of religion in America, gender issues, political contributions, and the hottest of all hot-button topics, a woman's right to choose. Jewish law, of course, has nothing to say about the current debate, but it has a lot of relevant things to say about justice and about judges, and some of what it has to say is quite relevant. And so the topic for this week is judicial reform and what Judaism has to offer to the debate. A woman's right to choose was the subject of oral arguments before the Supreme Court on Wednesday, in a case challenging a 2018 Mississippi law that bans abortions beginning with the 15th week of pregnancy. Pro-choice advocates say that law violates the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision and is blatantly unconstitutional, in their words. Roe v. Wade affirmed a woman's constitutional right to an abortion up to the 24th week, at which time a fetus is deemed likely to survive outside the womb. Federal Judge Carlton Reeves of the Southern District of Mississippi agreed with the pro-choice advocates, and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals later affirmed Reeves' decision, despite the fact that the Fifth Circuit, which covers Mississippi, Texas, and Louisiana, is considered to be one of the most conservative courts in the nation. We'll hear again from the Fifth Circuit in a few minutes. Wednesday's case, known as Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, is now in the hands of the nine justices of the Supreme Court. According to one analysis, if the High Court's conservative majority weakens Roe in any way or completely overturns it, at least 21 states will almost immediately ban abortion within their borders. Eventually, more than half of all states are likely to do so as well. That makes Wednesday's session one of the most important in the High Court's current term. 
It's also the most serious challenge to Roe v. Wade in 29 years. If the court, in fact, weakens or overturns Roe, that decision is virtually certain to add even more fuel to the already loud calls for court reform. No one knows how this case will be decided, but the hope is that the court will allow Roe to stand, although, judging by the arguments on Wednesday, the court is likely to reduce the limit on abortions to as little as 15 weeks, which is when most abortions are performed in any case. At least two of the conservative justices, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, signaled that this might be acceptable to them. Such a ruling, though, will cause a firestorm of protests coming from the right. Lower federal courts have also come under criticism of late, especially because of rulings made by the large number of conservative judges who were appointed during the Trump era. On Tuesday, for example, a Trump-appointed U.S. District Judge in Missouri, Matthew T. Shelp, temporarily blocked a Biden administration rule requiring health care workers at facilities that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding to be vaccinated. Judge Shelp said the vaccine mandate was very likely, quote, arbitrary and capricious, unquote. He also said that, quote, COVID no longer poses the dire emergency it once did, unquote. And he even questioned several times whether there was enough evidence to the contrary to warrant such an unprecedented mandate, as he termed it. This, of course, is one of the main arguments coming from the right, and it flies in the face of what science tells us. As the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention noted in September, quote, Evidence suggests the U.S. COVID-19 vaccination program has substantially reduced the burden of disease in the United States by preventing serious illness in fully vaccinated people and interrupting chains of transmission. The risks of COVID-19 infections in fully vaccinated people are higher where community transmission of the virus is widespread. Current efforts to maximize the proportion of the U.S. population that is fully vaccinated against COVID-19 remain critical to ending the COVID-19 pandemic, unquote. We've seen rulings similar to Judge Shelp's COVID-19 ruling. A panel of three Republican-appointed judges on the Fifth Circuit, for example, blocked implementation of a rule issued by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that would have required private companies of 100 or more employees to institute mandatory vaccine or weekly testing programs. The Biden administration is appealing that ruling. Rulings such as these only heighten the calls for court reform, from the Supreme Court all the way down the federal court line. Political activists aren't the only ones who are unhappy with the federal judiciary and especially the Supreme Court. The Gallup organization has been monitoring public sentiment regarding the high court since 2000. Just over a year ago, 58% of Americans approved of the Supreme Court. But that dropped down to a 49% approval rating in July. Then, after the court refused to delay implementation of the Texas abortion law, that approval rating dropped to just 40% a drop of 
18% in just over a year and the lowest approval rating for the court in the 22 years Gallup has been measuring it. A Monmouth University poll also found public dissatisfaction with the court. In that poll, 54% of U.S. adults said they disagreed with the court's decision to allow the Texas abortion law to go into effect. Equally significant, only 39% agreed with what the court did. If the court overturns Roe v. Wade, that will almost certainly send the court's approval rating even further down. In June, Gallup found that 58% of Americans want Roe v. Wade to be upheld. On Wednesday, the court's liberal justices focused on the public's dimming respect for the court. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, for example, asked, quote, Will this institution survive the stench this creates in the public perception? That the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? If people believe this is all politics, how will we survive? How will this court survive? Unquote. Justice Stephen G. Breyer agreed, said he, quote, People are going to be ready to say, no, you're just political, you're just politicians, unquote. The same is true when it comes to gun control, because 85% of Americans either want stricter gun control laws or want them to stay as they are, with only 11% backing and easing on gun restrictions. So if the court weakens or overturns any current gun control laws, that will further damage it in the eyes of the public. Gallup's September survey also showed a steep decline in the number of Americans who express either a great deal or at least a fair amount of trust in the federal judicial branch generally, from 67% just a year ago down to 54% today. In April, President Joe Biden appointed a commission to study the entire question of court reform at all levels. The commission is scheduled to meet this coming Tuesday to complete the report it plans to submit to Biden later this month. Among the subjects being debated, at times hotly so, are expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court and setting term limits for its justices, who now enjoy lifetime appointments. As the commission's draft materials show, the most heated debates within the commission relate to court expansion. There seems to be a greater consensus when it comes to term limits. Among other issues being addressed is what to do about what has become known as the shadow docket. You may have heard or seen the term shadow docket used in news reports of late. Essentially, the shadow docket is a fast-track approach to decision-making that was meant solely to deal with emergency situations. In the last four years, though, as a March 23rd Reuters article reported, its use has grown in such a way that it has caused a significant change to the way the high court does business. The Trump administration shares the blame with the court for that. During its four years, the Trump administration filed 20 times more shadow docket applications than were filed in the 16 years of the George H.W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations combined. The court's conservative majority granted most of those petitions 
and it often did so, as Reuters reported, quote, in a dramatically accelerated fashion and without providing signed opinions or detailed explanations, unquote. Neither liberals nor some conservatives are happy with this trend. One conservative legal scholar who's alarmed by it is the man who coined the term shadow docket, the University of Chicago Law School professor William Budd. As he told Reuters, quote, it's hard for the public to trust that the court is doing its best work, unquote. Here's a case in point. Shortly before 11 p.m. on Friday, February 5th, the High Court's conservative majority, without hearing any oral arguments for and against, cut the rug out from under local government mandates against houses of worship that were meant to curb the spread of COVID-19 by allowing them to hold indoor services. Now, here are some more recent shadow docket decisions. In a one-paragraph order issued in August, the justices let stand a lower court ruling that overturned the Biden administration's decision to end the Trump era's so-called remain-in-Mexico policy for asylum seekers. Also in August, the justices blocked a COVID-19-related federal anti-eviction rule that the Biden administration issued on public health grounds. Then there was its refusal to block Texas's controversial new anti-abortion law, which was delivered by the court's five conservative justices moments before midnight on September 1st in an unsigned one-page decision. By contrast, it took 11 pages for the four dissenters to explain why they dissented. Expanding the size of the Supreme Court, though, appears to be the most controversial and contentious issue before the Court Reform Commission. Ever since the United States came into being in 1789, Congress has fiddled with the size of the Supreme Court. It started out at six members in 1789. It was cut to five in 1801, only to be back up to six justices in 1802. In 1807, Congress increased the court size to seven members, and in 1837, it expanded the size again, this time to nine members. It didn't stay that way, though. During and immediately after the Civil War, the court was expanded to ten justices, then reduced to seven justices, and finally, in 1869, it was raised back to nine justices, which is where it's remained ever since. In 1937, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, furious with the court invalidating many of the New Deal programs meant to bring the nation out of the Great Depression, introduced what has become known as FDR's court packing plan. Under it, a president would get to appoint one additional justice to the Supreme Court for each justice who didn't agree to retire within six months after his 70th birthday. The plan also set a maximum court size of 15 justices. After a long and sometimes acrimonious debate, that plan was rejected. In the 1950s, to forestall any new court-packing attempts, some members of Congress tried to amend the Constitution to fix the size of the Supreme Court at nine members. The amendment easily passed the Senate, but the House killed it. 
Since then, there have been no new attempts in Congress to play with the size of the court. Until now. Much of the blame for that are the events surrounding the last three nominations to the Supreme Court, beginning with the Republican Senate's refusal to take up the nomination of Merrick Garland, and ending with that same Senate's hypocritical fast-tracking of Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination four years later. Not everyone sees these events as being a bad thing, of course. They argue that the recent nominations to the court appropriately reflect voter sentiment. The voters, after all, elected the president who made the appointments. That argument, of course, should have put Merrick Garland on the court, since the man voters elected to be president, Barack Obama, made the appointment. But the ones making this voters' choice argument hypocritically ignore that, and they also ignore how the public's views of the high court have plummeted because of it. On the other hand, there's at least one argument critics of expansion make that does have some merit. Expanding the size of the court could threaten its independence and put our whole constitutional system at risk. The Supreme Court can't be an effective check on the legislative and executive branches of government if the legislative and executive branches can turn around and pack the court with loyalists who would agree with them. Say Congress passes a law that the Supreme Court rules violates the Constitution. Congress, with the President's approval or over his or her objection, expands the court to put justices on it who will decide its way. Then Congress passes that law a second time, and this time the now packed court rules that it's constitutional. The Constitution becomes a document not worth the parchment it was printed on. Among the arguments in favor of court expansion is the possibility that an expanded court might better incorporate diverse personal and professional perspectives. That diversity, the Commission's draft report says, quote, could come from the inclusion of justices with experience in different sectors of the legal community or even the public sphere more generally, unquote. Jewish law would agree with that noble goal as I'll discuss later in this podcast. There are, of course, other ways to reform the court with or without packing it, but these may be even more controversial and even more counterproductive to the court's independence. There also are proposals to set non-renewable term limits for Supreme Court justices. As the draft report states, such proposals have enjoyed considerable bipartisan support in the past. One such proposal would set an 18-year limit on justices. As the draft report notes, quote, the United States is the only major constitutional democracy in the world that has neither a retirement age nor a fixed term limit for its high court justices. Among the world's democracies, at least 27 have term limits for their constitutional courts, unquote. As the University of Chicago Law School's Tom Ginsburg testified before the commission, quote, were we writing the United States Constitution anew? There is no way we would adopt the particular institutional structure that we have for judicial tenure. No other country has true lifetime tenure for its justices and for good reason, unquote. 
The possibility of imposing a mandatory retirement age on justices is sometimes offered as an alternative to term limits, and the Commission has also heard testimony on this possibility. The Commission also heard arguments against term limits, of course. Opponents argue, for example, that supporters of term limits have the wrong idea about judges, seeing them as being political partisans. That's not true, they say because any judge who acts as a partisan or for political purposes would be violating his or her judicial oath to, quote, administer justice without respect to persons and do equal right to the poor and to the rich, and that I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon me, unquote. This argument presupposes, of course, that no judge would ever violate such an oath by deciding a case along political lines. One argument against term limits that does have merit is the fear of the revolving door syndrome. Opponents worry that judicial independence could be compromised by judges planning for life after leaving the Supreme Court. As the draft report puts it, quote, one might worry that a justice who is eyeing future positions in government might try to curry favor with political constituencies or that a justice who is eyeing future positions in industry or at a law firm might decide cases in light of those plans, unquote. The increased turnover could also destabilize the court's doctrine, quote, to the extent that new justices have different views of the law than their predecessors, and to the extent that they are willing to overrule or narrow precedents with which they disagree, more turnover on the Supreme Court could lead to more frequent doctrinal shifts or even cycles in which major precedents are discarded only to be reinstated later, perhaps in very short order, unquote. Interestingly, one of those who oppose term limits is none other than President Biden himself. When asked recently if he supported such proposals, he shot back with a decisive no. Jewish law, of course, has nothing to say about the Supreme Court of the United States, but it has a lot to say about who should be a judge and how a judge should exercise his or her responsibilities. Much of it is relevant to the current debate over court reform. Maimonides, the Rambam, sums up Jewish law's take on the qualifications required of a judge. Not only should a judge be well-versed in the law itself, he says, but the judge must also be at least somewhat knowledgeable in other subjects that likely will be a part of any case to be judged, because the judge needs to be able to understand arguments that can often become a bit technical. For example, Rambam lists among these subjects mathematics and the sciences. A judge who doesn't understand how statistics work, say, won't be able to grasp the intricacies of probability. A judge whose eyes glaze over during oral arguments or expert testimony in a particularly complex technology case can't possibly reach a truly just decision. That a judge should be at least somewhat knowledgeable in other subjects fits well with the argument that an expanded Supreme Court might better incorporate diverse personal and professional perspectives. Rambam also lists the seven fundamental qualities a judge must have. Wisdom, humility, fear of God, disregard for financial gain, love of truth, 
love of people, and a good reputation. This regard for financial gain especially fits well with the revolving door argument against term limits. A judge, Rambam says, must also have an unblemished reputation from his or her youth. If a judge's character before becoming a judge is tainted in any way, think Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh, that person is unfit to serve as a judge, says Rambam. A judge must also be patient, allowing both sides to make their arguments without showing favoritism in any way. And then there's this, says Rambam, Maimonides. The judge, quote, must have a courageous heart to save the oppressed from the oppressor, unquote. Women in Texas are oppressed by its new anti-abortion law. But the court majority showed no courage when it refused to delay its implementation. Now it has even delayed issuing its opinion, which was expected before Thanksgiving. Rambam says other things as well. Judges, for example, must, quote, love the truth, hate violence, and flee from anything that tastes of unrighteousness, unquote. In other words, a judge may not knowingly rule in favor of a litigant he or she knows is in the wrong, merely because the judge sympathizes with the litigant's argument, politically or for any other reason. Judges must also be careful to weigh all the facts and the law before rendering a decision. That's not very supportive of shadow docket decisions, which are done hurriedly and often are issued, as I said, without any explanation of the legal principles behind them. A judge who delays judgment in cases in which immediate harm could come to someone is considered by Rambam to be among the unrighteous. That certainly applies, for example, in the case of the Texas abortion law, which may cause real immediate harm to women especially. Rambam's view was also consistent with the original purpose of the shadow docket, which was to deal with emergency situations that clearly require swift attention, as the Texas law did and still does. Judges also must take the advice of experts into account and not rely solely on his or her own views of the law but not just any experts. Judges must lean heavily on the most learned experts with the best credentials. Judges who just accept the views of less learned experts who agree with them, says Rambam, belong, quote, to the category of the wicked who are arrogant in their decisions because such attitudes demonstrate haughtiness and will lead to perversion of judgment, unquote. We'll find out in the next few weeks what the commission decides. That's when the real debate will begin. Meanwhile, we'll have to deal with the Supreme Court, almost all of whose justices on either side seem to wear their politics on the sleeves of their judicial robes. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. The latest column is on the true meaning of Hanukkah.
Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Enjoy the rest of the Festival of Lights. And stay safe.